If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. The title of this morning's message is A Voyage of Faith, the Providence of God. A Voyage of Faith, the Providence of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, this morning we thank you, Lord, just for your graciousness as we just sang those songs and just sensed your presence here, Lord. We're so, so incredibly thankful for the grace that you bestow upon us each and every day. Lord, we thank you for your word that tells us that we can come before your throne of grace with boldness because it's there that we find help and grace in time of need. And so this morning, Lord, we pray as we go through this chapter, chapter 27 of the book of Acts, we ask, Lord God, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the reality of what's going on around us, lest we be shipwrecked and be caused to go adrift in our faith. Keep us grounded in you, we ask. Pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon the teaching of your word and upon our hearts to receive it, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at Paul and really um, God's call upon his life to go to Rome and, and to be there to preach the gospel. And we've seen a lot of different events that have taken place up to this point. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Paul proclaimed these words, I must see Rome. And when he said that, he had no idea of all that would happen to him before he would arrive in that magnificent city. He had no idea about the illegal arrests or the false accusations, the beatings, the assassination plots, the trials before a Roman court or a Jewish court, the imprisonments or the shipwreck that he would soon experience. And through it all, Paul trusted God's promise that just as he testified in Jerusalem about Jesus, that he would also bear witness of him in Rome. And he speaks of this in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And through it all, God saw him through it. Acts chapter 27 is a shot in the arm of encouragement to our faith. At first glance, the subject appears to be Paul, and specifically the harrowing voyage to get him to Rome. But as we look at this chapter, we begin to ask a question. Why did Dr. Luke the author of this, uh, this book spends so much time, an entire chapter, some 44 verses, and 16 of the first verses of chapter 28 telling this story. I mean, he's not a professional seaman. He's not a seasoned seafarer. He goes to great lengths to talk about the ship, the tackle, the sails, the prow, all of it. Why would he be so specific? Why would he spend so much time on every detail, the ports that they were in, the name of the storm that they encountered, the direction of the winds, the efforts to save the ship, all of it. I mean, there's nothing really as you read through this chapter that that, um, happens to advance the spread of the gospel. So why would he take so much time and go to such effort? May I humbly suggest it's because the purpose of this chapter is not to put Paul's faith on display but to put the faithfulness of God on display. In this chapter, God sustains, God protects, God provides, God delivers, and God saves. God is the subject of Acts chapter 27. John Polhill said this, One cannot miss the emphasis on the divine providence. And it's precisely through the detailed telling of the story that the lesson has its greatest impact. Chapter 27 is just one of those chapters that doesn't have a clear break in it. It just has a continuous story of Paul traveling from Caesarea to the island of Malta. And so like last week, we're just going to cover the entire chapter, chapter 27. That leaves us with one more chapter left in the book of Acts. And then we're going to pull out, as we go through this, we're going to pull out some observations and some salient applications as we go. So let's go ahead and just jump into it. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. 
you remember, as we've been looking at the story of Paul and his movement towards Rome in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, he appeals to Caesar. He stands before Felix and then Festus, and in 25, he appeals to Caesar and Governor Festus, who, um, who inherited the problem of Paul, we talked about this last week, um, was bound to send Paul to Caesar. And so having decided to do so, in Acts chapter 26, verse 32, Festus arranges uh, a ship for him to be taken to Rome. Remember, Paul is an uncondemned man at this point, um, who is now being put on a prison transport for his journey before Caesar. Verse 1 says that he delivered Paul and some prisoners to one named Julius. Now, we don't know a lot about these prisoners, anything at all. We don't know what they had done. We don't know how many of them there were. But W.M. Ramsey suggests that they were in all probability already condemned to death. And we're going to supply the perpetual demand which Rome made on the provinces for human victims to amuse the populace by their death in the arena. In other words, they were going to be chew toys in the Colosseum in Rome. And so Paul and these convicted prisoners are placed in the custody of a certain centurion named Julius of the Augustan, or maybe some of your translations might say the Imperial Regiment. That he was a centurion tells us that he was a leader of a hundred men, that he was a responsible man, man, and that he was of the Augustan or Imperial Regiment tells us that he wasn't just an ordinary centurion, but he was an honorable man, part of an elite unit of his majesty's imperial troops. And lastly, before we move on, notice the pronoun we in verse 1. Luke uses this pronoun 19 times. He also uses the word ours and us. So almost 25 times he uses the plural first person, meaning that he was an eyewitness of the events depicted in chapter 27. In his book, The Voyage of the Shipwreck of St. Paul, James Smith, a soldier by profession, a keen yachtsman for some 30 years, an amateur geologist and geographer, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Learning in London, took it upon himself from the years of 1845, or sorry, 1844 to 1845 to live in Malta to investigate Paul's voyage. And while he was there, he familiarized himself with the weather patterns of the Mediterranean. He studied the navigation of seamen, both of the ancient world and modern world. And his general conclusion was that Acts chapter 27 was the work of an eyewitness who nevertheless was a, was a landlubber and not a professional seaman. Notice what he says, quote, No sailor would have written in such, uh, in such a style so little like that of a sailor. And no man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all of its parts, unless from actual observation. And so for that year that he wintered and stayed in Malta, he discovered, he came to the conclusion that chapter 27 is accurate as far as it is concerned. He could tell that it was an eyewitness testimony of all that had taken place. And so Paul and a cohort of soldiers and some convicted prisoners boarded a boat and set sail along the coast of Asia. Verse 2. So entering a ship of Adramutium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. That's roughly 69 miles north of Caesarea on the coast. And it says in verse uh, 3, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. If we have that map, can we put that map up real quick? So this is kind of what we're looking at. Um, if you look down in the bottom right-hand corner, you see the greenness is Judea. And Caesarea is right there on the coast. And as it loops up, it goes to Sidon there um, in Syria, the bottom corner of Syria. And then you can kind of see the general route. They kind of go up and they skirt through Cyprus. They split the difference between Cilicia and Pamphylia. And then right where you see Lycia, that kind of green country there um, in the middle of the screen almost, uh, you'll see there's a little city called Myra there. And that's our next destination. And then you can kind of follow along, and we'll come back to this map here in a few minutes and talk about some of the other places. But it just gives you kind of a geographic setting, kind of localizes you with what we're looking at. Starting in Caesarea, now we're heading into uh, Sidon, and then eventually we're going to be going up across the Mediterranean until we get to Lycia. But verse 3 tells us, Julius 
treated Paul kindly. Julius allowed Luke and Aristarchus to, to travel on the ship with Paul. But the question remains, why? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, where Paul has not received kindness from anyone, in fact, he was two years under house arrest while he was in Caesarea, He's traveled and bantered back and forth from different leaders trying to figure out what they're going to do with him. And he's put on this ship, put into the custody of this man, and all of a sudden he receives kindness, special favor. Why? Some believe that Aristarchus paid his own way upon this ship, and others believe that Dr. Luke inscripted himself to be the ship's doctor, and that's why they were allowed to be on the ship with Paul. Others, like W.M. Ramsey, think that both Aristarchus and Luke acted as if they were Paul's personal servants, hence improving his stature in the eyes of Julius and the other remaining crew members. Guzik suggests that Paul's godly character and display of Christian love were also helpful in gaining favor. And possibly both of these are correct. We don't know for sure. What we can say is this. It was the Lord that gave Paul favor in the eyes of this man. Amen? Amen. Verse 4. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian or an Egyptian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty to to Canidos, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And so again, if we can put that map up one more time, we'll see kind of the general route. Uh, You see where Lycia is and Myra is there. You see the yellow where it says roads right there. Um, The ship kind of skirts through there, and then eventually it takes an abrupt drop down south to the island of Crete, and it goes around the corner, the far right-hand corner of Crete there, the island on the right-hand side is the peninsula of Salmone. That's what he's talking about right there, and then they kind of come underneath it as well. So that's kind of where we're at at this moment. The ship that they sailed in verse 6 Um, We know from verse 38 that it was a grain freighter. It wasn't like a beautiful frigate, right? It wasn't as beautiful. When you think of these ships back in those days with these large, grandiose sails, this was a Kleenex box, really. (laughs) It was a a barge, if you will, um, that had one uh, one mast and one large sail. It uh, didn't even have a rudder per se. It had two paddles that stuck off the back of the boat that were used to help steer this thing. Um, it was a large vessel, right? Um, thinking about the size of it, in this room, it was roughly six feet wider than this room, so it was 36 feet wide, and it was 140 feet long, which is longer than this building itself. So it was a large vessel, right? It was a sturdy and a strong vessel. But again, it's a barge. It wasn't meant to sail into the wind. And that's exactly what they're going to be trying to do here in a few minutes. Um, Verses 7 and 8 tells us that the wind was contrary to them. The word contrary means it opposed them. It was adversarial, if you will, to them, blowing them from the, the northwest. And they found sailing up the coast was very difficult. The language is such that it describes them barely making it into this port of Fair Havens. If you read from the King James, it says they hardly passed it, right? It gives the idea of a car. Anyone ever run out of gas in a vehicle before, right? Of a car rolling to a defeated stop when it's, once it's run out of gas. And how many of us have been like, just a little bit farther, right? And you can imagine all these guys like, lean forward, everyone on this barge, lean forward, get your weight, trying to get just past so they could just barely scoot into the harbor there. John Polhill, in his commentary, says this, Already the voyage was somewhat off course, because the normal route from Myra would have taken the vessel to the south of Rhodes and, there, and from there to the south of Crete and along the northwest coast of that island. In their effort to go south to Crete, 
they were blown even further off course, not to the shelter north of the island, but but past Cape Salmone, traveling along the southern coast, they finally put in at a place called Fair Havens. And so if you remember that map, they were blown um, down south. They wanted to go on the north part of Crete, but they missed it. The wind was so strong, it blew them off course, and so they actually swung underneath and ended up coming under south underneath the island of Crete and landing in this place called Fair Havens. Verse 9, so much time had been spent, and so this kind of gives us a little bit of a mark of time that they spent a little bit of time in that port, right? So when much time had been spent, or rather, a lot of time in that port, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying this, verse 10, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Can you imagine hearing that? You're on this boat, you're in a horrible storm, and some guy just stands up and says, Guys, we're doomed. <laughs> That I, have, I perceive that this voyage is going to end in tragedy. Can you imagine hearing something like that? So they, they hear this word and they recognize they've been for a period of time staying in this harbor thinking that it's going to be a place of safe refuge. It says that there is a fast that took place. It's believed that the fast that Luke is referring to spoke of the fast that was on October 5th in 59 AD, which would have been the Day of Atonement which is marked by a 25-hour fast. This was a treacherous time to be trying to sail through the Mediterranean. F.F. Bruce said the dangerous season for sailing began on September 14th, and it lasted until November 11th. Now read that again. Let's what it says. The dangerous season was between November 14th and, or sorry, September 14th and November 11th. We're in October, Right? So we're right in the middle of that time, perhaps now in the middle of the month of October. We're in the dangerous season. He goes on to say this, after that, all navigation on the open sea would be impossible until winter was over. So you can imagine the captain, the owner, the crew sitting there, and they're looking at their clocks. They're looking at the calendar. These guys are, are fasting and celebrating and recognizing a, 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 you know, a, a time of a feast of atonement, the Day of Atonement. And they're like, we got to get going. Time is running out. we got to move. And all of a sudden, it's over. They find themselves in the middle of October, and they're thinking, we're in deep trouble. This is not good. And then Paul stands up and says, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. Not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now at this point, Paul wasn't necessarily speaking prophetically at this moment. But rather he was speaking from experience. He had traveled some 3,500 miles on the Mediterranean by himself. He was no stranger to storms at sea or to shipwrecks. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it tells us that he was shipwrecked on three separate occasions. The Greek word where it says, I perceive, means to perceive from past experience. Paul is speaking, speaking from experience, not out of fear. Out of experience. I know what this means. I know the season that we're in. These winds, these waves, I know what this means. This is bad. And so he stands up and makes this proclamation. And so knowing the seasons and the condition, and perhaps with supernatural wisdom, he advises them not to go on, but to winter there in the port of Fair Haven. One commentator said this, Paul's warning was not prophetic initially, but it sure would turn out to be. Verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman, or the captain, and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. 
the harbor, it says, was not suitable to winter in. The position of the bay at Fairhaven made it vulnerable to winter winds and storms. Therefore, the captain and the owner disagree with Paul's assessment. They said, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. And they thought that they could actually go, proceed another 40 miles down the coast to reach the port of Phoenix. They thought that would be a better place to winter and wait out the storms. The centurion, naturally, he agrees with the expert opinion, and he disagrees with Paul. Again, Paul says this, unpopular as his advice was, Paul had issued the warning. And in any good narrative, when such has been said, such, such has been raised, one had better look out stormy weather ahead verse 13 when the south wind blew softly supposing that they had obtained their desire putting out to sea they sailed close to crete but not not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind they let her drive and running under the shelter of an, an island called clada we secured this skiff with difficulty And so Paul stands up, he pleads his case, they disagree with him. The next morning they wake up and it's blue skies and it's fair weather. The wind is blowing softly and they think, see, we were right. He was wrong. Follow our example. Let's, let's, you know, pull up the anchor and let's move. So favorable winds affirming their decision to forego Paul's advice deceived them to thinking that they could manage this 40 miles up the coast. And it says, but soon a tempestuous headwind arose and the ship was driven helplessly out into the open seas by ferocious winds. The Greek word translated tempestuous here is where we get our English word typhoon from, right? So these were typhoon winds. These are the father of all winds, right? We're talking hurricane type winds, The sailors recognizing this wind as an old adversary, an old enemy, that a name for it, Euroclidon. Today, the same wind is called Gregale or the Greek winds. It's a whirling and cyclonic wind. Pliny the Elder describes it as the chief plague of all sailors, breaking up not only the spars, but the hull itself. At this point, any chance of reaching the port of Phoenix is all is lost. And so they sought shelter under the small island of Clada, about 25 miles south of Crete. And so again, verse 16, running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands or some sandbars, um, they um, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline or circle, put an asterisk by, whatever you want to do in your Bible, that phrase, all hope that we would be saved, was finally given up. The crew knew that they were in dire straits and they tried everything they could. They took drastic measures to try and save the ship. First, what they do is they hauled in the lifeboat. Probably it is filled with water at this point. It says that with great difficulty they hauled it up. I can imagine it says, even says we hauled it up. Luke perhaps being inscripted to help lift that boat into, or lift that lifeboat into the ship Hands blistered, red, burned from the rope perhaps. We, with great difficulty, lifted this lifeboat into the boat. Secondly, we undergirded the ship, passing cables or ropes under the hull of the, of the ship, trying to brace it against the waves to prevent it from being broken up. Thirdly, they struck sail. That phrase can also be translated, they set out sea anchors to act as a break as they drifted uncontrollably. Fourthly, the next day they jettisoned some of the cargo and on the fifth, fifthly, on the third day of the storm, they threw overboard as much of the ship's cargo as they could spare. And finally, notice it says this, after many days of a raging storm, 11 more to be exact, with neither sun nor stars to guide them, the whole ship's company, some 276 individuals, gave up all hope of being saved. 
Have you ever been there? You ever been in a place where the storm is so severe that you feel like you just can't continue? That there's no hope? You ever been in despair like that before where you feel like there's just no getting out of this? This is the best it's ever going to be. What got these guys there? Was it pride? Was it ambition? Was it impatience? Was it trusting in their own wisdom, perhaps not heeding the warnings of others? Sometimes, I know for myself this is true, sometimes we get ourselves into storms for the same reason. We're impatient. We pray, but we don't wait. Anyone ever done that before? Yeah, right? Or we don't accept advice, godly counsel. Instead, we accept advice or counsel contrary to God's will. Or we follow the crowd, right? Here we read the story of how Paul gives this word. The centurion doesn't agree, doesn't accept it. The captain of the ship, the owner of the ship say one thing, and then it says the entire crew, the majority, the multitude, decided, ah, it's time for us to move on. You ever followed the crowd? Instead of doing what you know to, be, to, do, uh, to do right? And then... They trusted in ideal conditions. This is the perfect time for this. Everything is lining up. The stars are aligned. Everything is happening just like it should. I'm going to move now, even though it may not be the the Lord's will. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16 says, whoever believes will not act hastily. Guys, listen, it pays to listen to God's word. Amen? Amen? It pays to listen to the Holy Spirit. It pays to listen to godly counsel. Verse 21. But after a long absence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. This is Paul's I told you so moment, right? He's looking at these guys. He says, Listen, I told you so. You should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and this loss. We wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now if you guys just would have listened to me, verse 10, right? And But look what he says in verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood before me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Two different times he says, take heart. Two different times he encourages them to take courage. These guys were discouraged They were defeated. All hope of survival was finally lost. Morale was at an epic low. None of them had even a stomach to eat. Paul wanted to bring these hopeless men hope. His point wasn't to show them that he was right, but his point was to tell them good news, that they would all be saved, every last man. Verse 23, For they stood before me this night, there stood before me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. I love that. There stood before me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve. Paul never forgot that he belonged to God. He never forgot that he served God. Doesn't matter if he was on dry land or at sea, if he was free or imprisoned, if he was wealthy or poor, he never forgot that he belonged to God and that he served God. It reminds me of, of I, in my opinion, the greatest movie ever made. How many of you guys like movies in this, in this place? I love movies. Well, kids and I, we used to watch movies all the time. It reminds me of the greatest movie I believe it was ever made. And here's the, here's the plot. A king who finally has a long-awaited son 
And he rejoices over that son. He loves that son. And the son enjoys all the prestige and all the benefits of, of being a prince of the kingdom. And one day he's out frolicking, he's having a good time, and he gets himself in a little bit of trouble, and the king has to come and save his son. And in so doing, he gets mortally wounded and dies. And the uncle steps on the stage and promises to take care of the prince, but really all he wants is power. You guys know where I'm going? The greatest movie ever made, Lion King. It is, it's an amazing story. Right? And there's a lot of God things in it. In fact, Mufasa in Swahili means king. Right? And so you have King Mufasa and you have his son Simba. You remember the story in Simba? You know, he's lost. He's been, you know, he's been kicked out of the kingdom. And so he's starving. He's sad. He's alone. He's weak. And so he goes off. He just falls down into the grass and he's laying there. And, and he has this vision, this dream of his father speaking to him. And listen to what he says. Simba, you have forgotten me. No, how could I, Simba says. Again, this James Earl Jones voice, right? Darth Vader's voice, right? It's amazing. And he says, you have forgotten who you are. And so have forgotten me. Right now, I wish my voice could sound like that at this moment. Look inside yourself, he says. You are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. And Simba says, how can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. And he responds, remember who you are. You are my son. Remember who you are. I think what gets us in trouble most as Christians and what causes us to get thrown off course in life and to be set adrift is that we forget who we are. And so doing, we forget God. And maybe that's you here this morning and maybe the Holy Spirit would say to you, return to God. Remember Him. And you say, but how can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. And the Holy Spirit would encourage you, remember who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter of the one true king. Remember who you are and return. Paul says in verse 25, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. Warren Wiersbe said, Paul's confident word to the troubled sailors on the storm-tossed ship express the essence of what it means to put your faith in God and his word. God said it to Paul, and Paul said, I believe God. I believe God. Four quick points of application. Notice that Paul didn't say, I believe in God. He said, I believe God. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Paul declared his total confidence in God's knowledge of his situation and God's promise in his situation. Secondly, Paul believed God when there was nothing else to believe in. Paul's faith was not a fair-weather faith. He couldn't believe in the sailors, the ship, the sails, the wind, the centurion, human ingenuity, or anything else. All he could believe in was God. Sure, the storm was real. Sure, the danger was real. But God was more real to Paul than anything that could happen to him. And maybe that's a word for you here this morning. Let me ask you this. With all humility... Is God more real in your situation than what you're going through? Is God more real than your physical sufferings, than your financial issues, than your marital and relational issues? Is God more real than all of that? Because if He is, you're going to come out of it just fine. But if He's not, then you're going to stay in that place and suffer until you come to grips with the reality that God is more real 
than anything you are going through. The scriptures tell us, this too shall pass. But God never passes. He never changes. To Paul, God was more real than anything he was going through. Thirdly, Paul was not ashamed to say that he believed God. Charles Spurgeon said this, I would to God that all Christians were prepared to throw down the gauntlet. I love that picture of just throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I believe God, right? Maybe you're going to be at the library and you're talking about the books that are coming in the library. Maybe you're at a parent-teacher conference or maybe you're at school board meeting or wherever you may be and maybe you just throw down the gauntlet figuratively, not literally, right? Throw down the gauntlet and just say, you know, I, I hear what's going on here, but you know, I believe God. And I believe God's heart for our community, for our kids, is this. I believe God. He says it in his word, and I believe it. Charles Spurgeon again says, I would to God that all Christians would prepare to throw down the gauntlet and, not come, and to come out straight. For if God be not true, let us not pretend to trust him. If the gospel be a lie, let us be honest enough to confess it. And lastly, even though he was a prisoner, Paul's unshakable confidence in God made him a leader among men. Verse 27. Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And so they took soundings and found it to be about 20 fathoms or 120 feet. A fathom is six feet, so 120 feet deep. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms or 90 feet. And then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern. And notice what it says. And they prayed for day to come. They prayed for day to come. You guys have heard it said before, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? And here they are, they're looking at their impending death. And what's the, what's the one thing that they do? They pray. It had now been 14 days since the ship had been forcibly blown from the coast of Crete. They traveled some 475 nautical miles. The captain and the crew had done everything they possibly could to save themselves and the cargo to no avail. Paul stands up and he says that God's going to save every single life on this ship, but the ship and all of its cargo are going to be lost. And so these men... In the depth of the night, in the the pitch black of night, they begin to hear this noise. And it sounds like waves are crashing against the breaks. And so they pitch out four anchors and they pray. This was not a wing and a prayer type moment. This was a four anchor and a prayer type moment. It was that bad. Four anchors thrust off the bow of the boat. But the faith that Paul had was so contagious that these believers began to pray for mercy from Paul's God that they would survive the night. You guys ever had a moment like that when you're in a really bad situation and people who are not believers come up to you and they go, dude, can you pray for me? I remember years ago we were playing UCLA. We had just beat UCLA. We were flying back and we got into a horrible storm and we couldn't land in that town that's just south of Corvallis where the other university is, right? And so we couldn't land there. And so because the storm was so bad, so they said, oh, we'll put you into Portland. And so we went to Portland. We couldn't land there, and they waved us off. And so then we started moving up into Seattle. I'm thinking, like, how much, how much fuel does this plane have, right? I literally called. Remember the days you could actually use the phone in the back of the seat of the, the plane? You could call. I remember calling my dad from the plane and going, Dad, I think... I think we're going to crash. My dad's like, oh, son, you'll be fine. I'm like, no, dad, I'm serious. I think we're going to crash. He's like, you'll be fine. But I remember calling and, and, and praying, and all of a sudden, guys in the back of the plane are starting to come up and just asking for prayer on the plane as we're just circling PDX, trying to find a place where we can land. And one guy literally said, if this plane goes down, I know that this row that Chris is sitting in will be saved. <laughs> which is probably not true, but nonetheless. But you ever had those moments when things are really bad and all of a sudden people who normally don't pray believe in prayer? And this is that moment. But notice what happens next, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors, 
anchors from the prow or the front of the boat. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. There's some relevant points of application here. First is this. After these men prayed for God's providential intervention, what did they do? What's the next step they take, the next action? They take matters in their own hands, don't they? They take matters in their own hands, not trusting that the God to whom they had just prayed would protect them and provide for them. Anyone here ever done something like that? I have. In their effort to save themselves, they actually put their lives and the lives of everyone else on board at risk. After all, what is a ship without its crew, right? Paul's words were sobering. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. How many, how many a Christian man or a Christian woman have been shipwrecked because they feign to believe in God, but then trust in their own strength and ingenuity to navigate the storms of life? In their effort to save themselves, how many friendships, how many relationships, how many marriages families and children are put at risk because we feign to trust God while at the same time we, time we try to escape the ship. Friends, cut away the ropes that you hope will save you. The SS salvation is only captained by Jesus. And unless you and I stay in the ship, we cannot be saved. We cannot be saved. It reminds me of John chapter 15. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, what? You can, bear, you can do nothing. Verse 33, And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment. For this is for your survival. Not a hair will fall from your head, the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. This is the last bit of food that they have. They throw it overboard. John Stott describes Paul as a man who combines spirituality with sanity and faith with words. He said, he believed that God would keep his promises and had the courage to say grace in the presence of a crowd of hard-bitten pagans. What a man. He was a man of God and of action, a man of the spirit and a man of common sense. Verse 34 says, not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12 where Jesus is talking about worrying and fretting and despairing. He tells us that, that God knows the things we have needed before we even ask. He says, and God even knows every hair on your head, right? And so it's such an encouraging passage. And here, Paul is speaking a word of faith and confidence from the Lord for this frightened crew and these passengers. But here's the thing. The word only benefited those who believed it. The word only benefited those who believed it. God has scores of promises of his comfort in this book for us. Scores of promises of his care in desperate times for us. But it will only benefit us, benefit us if we believe it question this morning is, do you believe it? And when I ask that question, I mean all of it. Not some of it. Not that things are easy to understand. Do you not even believe in it? Do you believe it? It's a really good question for us here this morning as we kind of survey our own lives, as we kind of do a personal inventory here this morning is, do I truly believe God's word. Verse 39 says, And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach 
onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the, the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. And the prow, or the front, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern, the back of the boat, was being broken up by the violence of the waves. They didn't know at first, but the island they had run into was the island of Malta. And the place that the ship ran aground is currently to this day called the St. Paul's Bay. Now, it's miraculous that they even got to this island. Because of the current and the winds, it was contrary to them, blowing them in the other direction. They should have never actually arrived at this island. It is a miracle that they were there. Ramsey says this, only the rarest conjunction of favorable circumstances could have brought about such a fortunate ending to their apparent hopeless situation. All these circumstances are united in St. Paul's Bay. Verse 42, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them swim away and escape. You might be thinking, like, that's a, that's a bad deal, right? I mean, they just survived a radical storm. They've just been shipwrecked. I mean, they've survived this whole thing together, and now they're saying, well, let's just kill all the prisoners. <laughs> but you've got to understand that under Roman military law, if a guard were to lose his prisoner, he would be subject to the same penalty that they were accused of. In other words, in this case, these, all these prisoners were condemned to death. So if these prisoners got away, these soldiers would be killed. And so they're actually looking out for their own lives by thinking this way. But look what God does, verse 43. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. Here we see again, God had given Paul favor in the eyes of the centurion. And this favor now was extended to everyone else on board. Side note. Do you guys know that surfing is biblical? Do you guys know that surfing is biblical? It is. Hear me out. Verse 43, again, the centurion wanting to save Paul kept them for this, uh, from this purpose and commanded that those who could swim would jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, verse 44, notice what it says, some on boards, right? <laughs> there it is. Some on boards and some on parts of the ship. Yep, surfing is biblical. Verse 44, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. John Polhill says this, all were saved. Paul's God had indeed not abandoned them to the anger of the seas. His God was with him, and because he was with the apostle, all were saved. John Stott, quoting J.B. Phillips, so it came true, wrote J.B. Phillips, probably to express the fulfillment of God's purpose and promise that everyone reached the shore in safety. I'm going to have the worship team start making their way up. And as we do so, I want to give you four timely and practical lessons. You can go ahead and close your Bibles if you would like at this moment. Four timely and practical lessons from chapter 27. The first is this. Storms often come when we disobey the will of God. Storms often come when we disobey the will of God. Remember the story of Jonah. God wants the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh. He jumps on a boat trying to go to Tarsus. Uh, there's all this storm that hits. They throw him overboard. This big fish swallows him up, barfs him up on the coast or the beach there in Nineveh. Because of disobedience, he went through that storm. In this case, Paul wasn't necessarily disobedient, but the centurion was. So was the owner of the boat, and so were the captain, and so were all the rest of the crew. And so it's true that we ourselves can go through storms of life because of disobedience, but we can also suffer because of other people's unbelief and disobedience. Secondly, storms have a way of revealing character. They really test who we really are and what we really believe about ourselves and about God. They really test us. Here, Paul, in the midst of all that's going on, he's the only individual who is grounded on this boat on this ship, in the midst of this tempestuous wind, this hurricane-type um, storm. He's the only one that is firmly grounded. Others tried to escape. Others lost all hope. But Paul trusted God and obeyed his will. Thirdly, even the worst storms cannot hide the face of God or hinder the purposes of God. 
God had purposed to place Paul on a trajectory. That there was a very specific purpose for his life. And nothing or no one would hinder that purpose. Do you know that God has a very specific purpose for your life? There is a trajectory that he has you on. There is an end point to this journey. And that is to be in his presence. In the process of getting you there, he's going to take you through many storms. You might experience some shipwreck along the way. But God's purpose and plan will not be thwarted for your life. Believe God. And finally, the storms can give us opportunities to serve others and bear witness to Jesus Christ. Paul was the most valuable man on that boat, not because of what he could do, not because of who he was, but because of who he served. He knew who he belonged to, and he knew who he served. He knew how to pray, and he had faith in God, and he was in touch with God. He listened to what God was saying. A man of God, for sure. But chapter 27 is all about the faithfulness of God. And God wants to prove that in your life as well. That he is faithful, even when we are faithless. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Truly it is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. We thank you, Lord God, for the way your Holy Spirit works in us. And just those resounding words, remember who you are. Lord, this week I pray that you would remind us of who we are. When we're faced with trials and temptations, when we're in the midst of the storm, when the ship is being broken up because of the, the force of the waves around us. Remind us, Lord, of who we are. And remind us of who you are, we pray. And draw us back into the shelter of your harbor. Father, this morning for those individuals today who are just adrift who are experiencing shipwreck. Maybe it is because they've forgotten who they are. Maybe it is because they've forgotten who you are. We pray today that you would remind them, that you would encourage them. Lord, that you would lift them. Lord, that you would allow them to stand upon solid ground again. That they experience the grace of your forgiveness and your acceptance, we pray. And Lord, we pray that you who are the captain of our ship would guide and lead and direct every step that we take. We don't ask, Lord God, that you keep us from storms. We don't ask, Lord God, that you would even keep us from shipwreck at times. We just ask, Lord, that you would keep us next to your heart, safe in your hands. And that that would be our confidence that we would remember that we belong to you and that we serve you. 